You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Dead authors, fresh takes, and the epilogues you never knew you needed. to Oh No Lit Class, the podcast that's written whole entire dissertations on postmodernism and still can't explain what postmodernism is. I'm Megan. I'm RJ, and I know what postmodernism is. You can only pretend to know what postmodernism is. Wrong. Post-mo- you don't know postmodernism. Postmodernism knows you. Wrong. We'll come to this in a later episode at a later date, and we'll all see how wrong you are. But... For now, for today, we have something far sexier in mind. RJ? We do? Yeah. Puritans? The, is there anything hotter than Puritans and sin? There is, Megan. Did you hear our last episode? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And who do you think of when you think of sinful Puritans, RJ? John Grisham. Uh, <laughs> I think you have a very different interpretation of the Rainmaker than I did. <laughs> Harrison Ford. No, and, and, and those were Quakers in, in a Witness. Whoopi Goldberg. I don't even know what movie you're referencing. Oh, wait, Sister Act? Was this a Sister Act reference? Yeah, did you see the clothing they were wearing? She was a nun. Totally That's not pyramid. the same thing. Sinful. We're talking about Nathaniel. Madonna. We're talking about Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. The tragic tale of angst and guilt and hot, hot Puritan sex that makes God sad. So it's epistemology. Me? Isn't epistemology like a... Like yeah, it's a letter. Written, yeah. Yeah. So it's a letter written in Scarlet. Ugh, that wasn't even a good joke! <laughs> so I feel like most people are at least familiar with uh, the Scarlet Letter. It, it tends to get pushed on high schoolers, I'd say, nearly as much as Romeo and Juliet. And if you're not familiar with the book itself, then at least the idea of, like, that the Scarlet Letter is shame. Because the whole book, that's what the whole book is kind of about. But in order to understand Scarlet Letter, the book, we have to learn about the man behind the book because that's what we do here on every episode. I mean, I feel like you ought to have caught on to that, you know, by now. So, RJ, tell us about the man, the myth, the tightly wound legend, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Nathaniel Hawthorne. Jorna. Jorn. <laughs> Jorn. <laughs> Jorn. That's like being born while wearing jeans. <laughs> Born on the 4th of July, 1804, like a good American. All right, then. Lived until 1864. Um, He's considered to be a dark romantic, which we'll talk about later on in the episode. He was born in Salem, Massachusetts, like any good offspring of many, many Puritans. He was born into a pretty wealthy family, as his family had been in Salem now for a few generations, 
His ancestors included John Hawthorne, who was a judge during the Salem Witch Trials. In particular, John Hawthorne was the only judge to never repent for his role in the Salem Witch Trials. Because of that, Nathaniel Hawthorne changed the spelling of his name. That's why Hawthorne is spelled H-A-T-H-O-R-N-E. He took out the W after the... No, he added the W. Oh, shit. Have you not... <laughs> I read my note You wrong. don't know how to spell. <laughs> um, yeah, no. Okay, I'm going to fix it. Shut up. No, it's funnier. No. Nope, RJ uh, can't spell. Nah. He added the W to his name out of the, the shame of... Uh, huh, the name shame of... The name shame. The name shame of the judge who was just like, nah, them witches deserved it. I regret nothing. Following in his grandfather's footsteps, his father um, also was a judge, so he... Did he also burn witches? No, it was over by then. I mean, I guess. He might have, like... The the witch trials didn't go on forever. He might have burned them recreationally as a hobby. They, They pressed them in stone. And I know you know that because yeah, you know. were there. Yeah, it's true. I was there. And they had that. We went to Salem and they had that one thing, that one dude's last words when they were, in fact, pressing him, like carved into the stone. And his last words were, more weight, because he was a fucking badass. But anyway, continue. Hawthorne's family never really moved out of Salem, which is why Hawthorne was born in Salem. So the Hawthorne family took the Mayflower, landed at Plymouth Rock, basically stayed there. Hawthorne had a pretty normal childhood. The only thing of interest I really saw research in his childhood is when he was 10, he was playing a bat and ball (laughs) and uh, he hit his leg and he became lame for a year. (laughs) I I feel like a dick laughing at that. How old was he? 10. He went out, (laughs) played some bat and ball. Gonna play some bat. It is like lame for a year. Uh, several physicians couldn't find anything wrong with him. That he, he was faking it. That he was being a little shit. Like, oh, my leg. Ow. After a year, he miraculously recovered and went on with his pretty normal life. Uh, not did, much... he, did he ever play bat and ball again? Unknown. Mm. I'll assume yes. Mm. Not much of note really happened to Hawthorne. He didn't really start writing when he was all that young. Um... He went to college, and then he stayed in what he called his owl's nest in his family home. Never really strayed far from home while he was still a bachelor. And he would read. He would write a little bit here and there. Um, In his more formative days, I'm talking like his 30s, so not exactly super formative. (laughs) Sort of of post-formative at that point. That's when he was writing short stories like Young Goodman Brown and The Minister's Black Veil. He basically was working government jobs. He was a weigher engager at the Boston Custom House. Um, Do you have any idea what that means? No. All right. At some point, he was also a surveyor. He was into women. In his 30s, he had public flirtations with local women, including Mary Silsby and Elizabeth Peabody. And after... Having a hots for them, he decided to dump Elizabeth Peabody and got it on with her sister, Sophia Peabody, who he eventually married. A scandal. This is a move I can support. You date the older sister to get to the younger one. Ew. 
You're saying that that's a thing you've done. Way to go, Nathaniel. <laughs> yeah, are you dating me to get to my younger brother? The simple answer is yes. <laughs> now, once you got with Sophia, she was a transcendentalist. Nathaniel was not. But he joined a transcendentalist community because that's what one does when they're in their mid-30s and want to save money. Um, um, I mean, do, do we want to take a second to explain what transcendentalism is for people who do not have a, a degree in sad literature? Sure. What's transcendentalism? Okay, so transcendentalism is if you took a bunch of middle-aged men, as we were discussing, and you put them in the woods and you got them super psyched about being in the woods and then they wrote about it a bunch basically the term to think of when you think of transcendentalist is self-reliance well yeah i mean presumably when they're living in the woods they're not like looking for handouts from uh so we're talking about like walt whitman henry david thoreau uh ralph waldo emerson just a bunch of dudes who were like let's enjoy the bounty of nature and cast off society and only rely on our own two hands and then write books about it. So anyway. And there's Nathaniel living at his parents' house. Hawthorne, not so much being the transcendentalist because he was kind of really religious and transcendentalism and religion do not go hand in hand. The transcendentalists were the hippies, if that isn't immediately obvious by now. Oh yeah, they were living in a commune. He joined the commune to save money. He basically only needed to pay $1,000 to live at the commune as long as he wanted. He was given a job because everyone gets a job at the commune and Nathaniel being very skilled, he was in charge of shoveling the hill that was called the gold mine. The gold mine <laughs> was a pile of manure. Yes! Oh, I was sitting here being, gosh, I hope the gold mine's the poop hill. And so Nathaniel Hawthorne lived on a transcendentalist <laughs> commune shoveling shit during his 30s so he could save money to marry his sweetheart, who was the younger sister of the girl he was boning earlier in life. Dude, it's the it's like the millennial experience. <laughs> Who says this isn't relatable to today's youth culture? Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson was part of this commune as well, or he would come and go. He said both Hawthorne and his wife were very reclusive. Apparently the two of them only liked each other. They didn't like anybody else in the world. He referred to the wife as his dove. His wife protected him at every turn which we will get into his first novel was called fanshawe and he wrote it he published it no one read it no one liked it no one bought it and this that's hurt a, him that, that's a that's a growing theme here on ono lit class <laughs> and so what he decided to do was basically buy up all the unsold copies which was all of them and he burned them all and <laughs> Basically, the rest of his life, he said he never wrote such a book. <laughs> what? Fart? Fart? Shot? What? No, no, wasn't me. Someone his, else. His wife was so dedicated to him that even after his death, and she was shown the book, said he never wrote such a book. Dude, she was ride or die. Yeah, she was with him the whole way. Um, I did look up the synopsis of Fanshawe. What a ridiculously bad novel. Oh my god, do tell. Basically, it boils down to this. A young woman named Ellen, very attractive, has all the boys in the hood running after her, including uh, Fanshawe. And Ellen gets kidnapped by the evil fisherman. Like, no joke here. 
I don't think he ever gets a name. He's just like the evil unnamed angler. Wow. And his wife could never admit he wrote the book, even one being shown a copy of the book. That's because she a real one. The other notable thing about Hawthorne was he was very much part of the political game, um, both in Massachusetts and in Washington. Uh, he was a Democrat, self-identified. And because he was so involved in politics, a lot of the state jobs he had came and went. Because if a Whig was in power, Hawthorne would get fired because he was a Democrat. If a Democrat was in charge, he would get his job back. And it went back and forth like that. Hawthorne wrote a biography of Franklin Pierce, one of our lesser known presidents. If you had said Franklin Pierce to me right now, I would not have immediately been like, ah, yes, of course, one of our presidents, so... He's in the Hall of Presidents. I'm, yes, as all presidents are. It doesn't mean I know them. I'm not living in the Hall of Presidents. What's interesting is that at the time, writing a biography about someone running for president, which is what Hawthorne did in, 19, or excuse me, in 1852, was kind of looked down upon. That it was just like political writing that you kind of just make the guy look good. Um and he wrote the biography two years after he wrote the Scarlet Letter, which we'll talk about, um, was a huge novel that it sold immediately. Like Hawthorne was really famous at this point. And people were kind of surprised he wrote a biography for Franklin Pierce. Um, but apparently the two of them were college friends. And so Hawthorne kind of felt like he owed it to the guy. Uh, what's interesting is how Hawthorne speaks about slavery. Oh, boy. So Hawthorne being a Democrat and Pierce being a Democrat, they were Northerners who kind of sided with the South in this antebellum American post-Civil War world they were in. And the issue of slavery was still around. So writing about Pierce and his own beliefs about slavery and how to solve the issues of slavery, Hawthorne said, quote, that slavery could not be remedied by human contrivances, but rather, over time, it will vanish like a dream. <laughs> just just don't think about it, and then it won't be a problem anymore. It's good. Don't worry about it. Just... Right, that it was just going to go away, that even though Franklin Pierce didn't speak out against slavery, he wasn't going to stop it. Don't worry about it, guys. Vote for him, because slavery is just going to go away on its own anyway. I mean, that's, that's very Puritan. It's God's will. What became very problematic for Hawthorne, living in Massachusetts, um, and then writing this biography, is that the same year he wrote this biography, a little book called Uncle Tom's Cabin was published. And Never heard of it. So people were really against slavery. And so he lost basically all the friends he had. And because of this, he told Pierce, after Pierce was elected, Yo, bro, you owe me. You owe me big. I took a fall for you. I talked about how slavery was just going to magically go away for you. <laughs> and so Hawthorne became the ambassador to Liverpool. Pretty cushy job. I guess. Gotta live in England. All right. Sure. Neat. It's better, better than shoveling out the poop hill, I guess. Yeah, he moved on. And that's the life and times of young Nathaniel Hawthorne. Shit digger. You did mention that at one point Hawthorne was working in a custom house doing something called weighing and gauging that we still don't know what that is 
Indeed. And so that's uh, relevant because the way that the Scarlet Letter is framed for whatever reason is that the book doesn't even open with the actual story. It has this kind of weird framing device of some dude working in a custom house. What? That's so weird. Like, what are the odds? And he's bored and he hates his job and he's like, oh, I can't advance anywhere because nepotism and at some point in the custom house he finds like this faded embroidered letter a and these writings and it's the story of hester prynne and the scarlet letter and he's like oh neat i should write it down as a as a novel wouldn't that be cool um so the narrative proper opens by just spending an absolutely ridiculous amount of time describing the door to the town prison. And next to the cold, sturdy, restrictive door is a colorful, beautiful, sinful rosebush. So yeah, the symbolism in this book is very subtle. So there's a bush above the door? There's a bush by the door. Not above the door. Let's, I mean, yes, I... I got a bush by the door, too. Oh, God. I, I, you know, I thought there's no way we're going to make an episode filthier than 1984. <laughs> but then when we did uh, Great Gatsby, I thought there's no way we're going to make an episode filthier than Great Gatsby. So let's just keep setting that, raising that bar higher and higher. Anyway, coming wait, out. Wait, wait, we did the Great Gatsby? It was literally our second episode. And it was filthy? All we did was make jokes about dicks. Did you know my West Egg hangs a little lower oh, than my Oh, no, egg? no. Oh, Wow. Too bad you couldn't have thought about that when we did it, like, three months ago. I'm so glad you find that funny. You do, too. Shut up. Why couldn't you have come up with that at the time? I'm feeling a little West Egg Okay, shut, stop, stop. We have to, can we start the book, please? My Rose Bush. Okay, nope, Needs a little trimming. Gross. Coming out of the prison is our protagonist, Hester Prynne. She's in trouble because this is Puritan times and she did a dirty, dirty sex without being married and made Jesus cry a thousand tears. The townspeople um, have figured this out by putting two and two together when a baby pops out of her. Uh, we learn that Puritan punishments are public and take place in the market square so that everyone can watch and judge you. And the guys are just watching, jerking it. <laughs> in the Puritan fashion. <laughs> So muted. <laughs> Just a very a very repressed, muted, reserved jerking. So Hester's punishment is that she has to wear a big old letter A for adultery on her chest for the rest of her life so no one forgets what a dirty whore she is. A's for analingus. Ew! And then they get mad at her because the letter A that Hester sewed onto her shirt or cowl or smock or whatever they wear back then is too pretty. The nerve dare she and then they make her stand with her newborn baby on this big stage thing in the square that pretty much exists solely for public shaming so that everyone can yell things at her because they are filled with god's love she should have owned it should have been like mm -mm -mm. oh maybe that's the, that making the a like really pretty and ornate was her owning it at this point at the back of the crowd there's a hunched over dude just kind of like checking things out and Hester recognizes him in, like, an oh-shit kind of way. And he legit does, like, the finger-over-the-lips shh thing, and it's really creepy. And then he turns to the nearest stranger and is like, 
Who dat? And they're like, that's Hester. She's married to some dude who was supposed to meet her here from England like two years ago, but never did. And then she had his baby, so we know she did a dirty sex. And he's like, hot. Who'd she do it with? And that's the thing. Hester won't say. Every girl has her secrets. So everyone wants to know who diddled her doodle. Even the town pastor, Reverend Dimsdale. Hey, neighborino. Who gets... <laughs> Did you diddle or doodle, Nibirino? <laughs> hey, diddly doodler. Uh, so he gets all up in her face and he's like, Yes, Hester, tell us. Tell everyone who did this thing, even if he's a very important public figure in the community and also too much of a little bitch to do it himself. Hester, do you see me winking at you? And Hester's like, Nah, bruh. Once they feel like she has had an adequate amount of public shaming, they put Hester back in prison, and the mysterious hunch dude he introduces himself as Dr. Roger Chillingworth and says, Please ignore the hilarious lack of subtlety in my last name and trust that I am an A-plus dude and also leave me alone with Hester in her prison cell, even though you just met me. And they do. Okay. What's the worst thing that could happen? Another baby? I mean, in, in Puritan terms, yes, that is the worst thing that could happen. But every baby is a blessing yeah unless you had it out of wedlock then it's a demon baby which we're gonna we're gonna get to so uh it turns out roger is actually hester's long-lost husband back now for some reason and he's like okay kind of mad about the whole being cheated on thing but also i acknowledge that i did just sort of vanish for two years and you're young and hot and i'm old and gross but you know whatever area code rule <laughs> I don't think they had area codes back then, so maybe it was more like country rule. Like, I was no. in England, you were in what you, America. What are you talking about? They had area codes. It was three. Three? Yeah. <laughs> you hit three before you dialed the local number. Okay. And Roger says, tell me who did this because I want to punish him. Spanky, spanky. Sort of the opposite of that, but also kind of not really. But either way, Hester's like, nah, bro. And Roger's like, whatever, I'm going to figure it out eventually, even if it takes a comically unpractical length of time. Also, don't tell anyone I'm your husband. Because reasons. And she agrees to this. Because reasons. I don't know why she agrees to keep the fact that Roger is her husband a secret. I don't understand what would, like, why, what would benefit her to go along with that. Well, I mean, at this point, I think she was trying to think going forward how was she going to have a life in this town and so at least he's an outlet which she winds up losing and the guy who fucked her loses him too and so she winds up being alone the rest of her life with her kid sad but the husband's back so maybe try to placate him so maybe he'll rescue her in the end he'll feel he has a duty towards her wow i mean i was i was just going for a joke but that was like actual plot analysis she did it for the d all right there we go <laughs> but anyway he, he doesn't even want to like save her or rescue her or, or protect her he wants the fucker he wants to destroy the dude who fucked her <laughs> so eventually hester is released from prison and gets a house on the outskirts of town and spends her days being shunned shun the sex woman shun her <laughs> at times she's like this is bullshit. Like, I'm chilling in my cottage, making clothes for the village that people love, but everyone's still being an asshole to me. 
being a Puritan is straight garbage, but then other times she's just like, Oh, I am the greatest sinner in the world. None are worse than I, Hester Prynne. Bring me my Evanescence CD. So her baby... Devil baby. Yes, her devil baby, who she names Pearl, grows to some vague age. And size. Yeah, it's true. It kind of kind of shifts. Like, is she three? Is she five? Like, Hawthorne had trouble committing and also possibly had never seen or spoke to an actual child at all in his life. I don't think you come across many kids if you're a shut-in and your outside exposure is a shithill. <laughs> not too many kids at the Transcendentalist shithill. Nope. So has... No, Billy, it's not safe. <laughs> don't play near the shithill, Billy. Don't put that in your mouth. Billy, what I tell you? And that's how Billy died. Gross. Don't put poop in your mouth, kids. So Hester is just kind of like, Oh, my poor, terrible sin daughter. You are tainted and it's my fault. And Pearl's like, Wee! I like dirt! And she throws flowers at her mom and they hit the A on her chest and Hester's like, Oh, each flower is like an arrow in my chest. Sin. And Pearl's like, Jesus, Mom, chill the fuck out. The biggest punishment was her having to raise that kid. Hey, you know what? Pearl is pretty baller. Like, I'm gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna look into this more. And uh, we're gonna explore the fact that Pearl might be the, the best and coolest character in this book. Okay. Unlikely. But the uh, townspeople, on the other hand, think that she's a devil child. So that's why Hester and Pearl have to go meet with the governor, because they might actually, like, they're considering taking Pearl away from what? It's governor. The governor. There you go. Well, they're in Puritan land. They're in America now. They say it like Americans. The governor. The governator. Yeah. That was a bad joke. After they spoke in Salem. Yep. Back in the 1600s. I don't think they said governor. Now they dropped the accent just halfway across the ocean. Yeah. They okay. just threw it, o- they threw it overboard. Yeah. Yeah. Fuck this. We're American now. Here's your, here's your rocks. Here's your natives to subjugate. Here's your cheeseburgers. Welcome to America. Which didn't exist in the 1600s. They didn't have that identity yet. For another 130 years. They didn't have cheeseburgers either. Let me have my joke. So they have to go meet with the governor to decide if Hester can keep Pearl. And so the meeting consists of Hester and Pearl and the governor, of course, and the Reverend Dimsdale as the spiritual representative for the town. And also Roger Chillingworth. Like, why is he there? For plot reasons. Ah, yes, of course. For plot reasons. Except not really even for plot reasons, because here's what happens. They say, why do you think you get to keep your kid? Hester says, because she's my fucking kid. And they're like, that's not good enough. Let's make sure you aren't raising her in the devil's ways. And they ask Pearl who made her. And they're expecting her to say God. Because that's like a, a catechism thing. Like, who made thee? And then the little kid goes, God. But she's like fucking five years old. And instead she's like, I came out of a rose bush. Because that's the last thing I saw before coming in here. Can I have a candy now? And everyone is just horrified at the Satan child. But then Dimsdale's like, nah, Hester should be able to keep her. And they do. So that whole thing's just a waste of time. And Roger doesn't even have any impact on that scene at all. So why is he there? Have you never seen a Jerry Springer show? (laughs) You are not the father. (laughs) 
No, that's a Maury show. Oh, shit, you're right. Neither of which is on CBS. CBS, America's number one network. We're still doing this, huh? We're still, we're still going to try for this? <laughs> Hi, CBS. Speaking of Dimsdale, a uh, dude ain't looking so hot these days. You could almost say it's like he's being tormented by a dark and terrible secret sin. Or something. I don't know. Could be anything. Indigestion. It ain't some bad fish. Pepto-Bismol. <laughs> they didn't have that, unfortunately. They had the cheeseburgers, had not perfected the Pepto-Bismol yet. So, luckily for him, though, Dr. Roger Chillingworth is here to help. He's going to make Dimsdale all better. He just needs to figure out what's wrong by examining him physically, psychologically, spiritually, moving into his house and living with him, giving him long shirtless back rubs by candlelight. You know, doctor stuff. So they, he moves in with him, like I said, and they have long conversations about being spiritual. And Dimsdale says something about how people can make themselves sick by not confessing their dark and terrible secret sins. And then he clutches at his chest, and it's been fucking years now, and Roger is only just starting to think there might be something fishy going on here? Because he's an idiot, I guess? Like, it's been years, he's like, I'm gonna figure out who did a sex on you, Hester. Nothing will stop me. I'm a doctor, and I'm really smart, and it's been like five goddamn years, and you've got Dimsdale constantly being like, oh, gosh, I'm weighted down with a mysterious guilt, and Roger's just like, Neat. At some point, Roger uh, finds Dimsdale when Dimsdale has fallen asleep while reading, and uh, this is where it gets a little weird. Pops open the Reverend's shirt to take a little peek at the goods. Which goods? His rosebush? No, look, the shirt. He, he unbuttons the shirt. We are above the waist. It's it's still weird, but it's not that weird. So he peeks down the sleeping dude's shirt, and. He is just so stoked at whatever he sees there that he dances out of the fucking room laughing with glee. Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, pretty much exactly that. So I just want you to have that image in your mind of one, of like a weird sort of hunched over, vaguely villainous looking man taking a taking a peek under the v-neck of a sleeping priest seeing something and then just like dancing a jig of glee out of the room like, <laughs> like, like like you do so then we spend some time specifically with dimsdale who is just the worst like he's absolutely the worst now rj if you haven't figured it out yet i don't want to you know i don't want to spoil it for you he's dimsdale's the, the killer no. <laughs> He's the one who gave Hester a tickle with his pickle. Did he put his hand in the cookie jar? No, I mean, he put his dick in it, but yeah, same idea. The The, the fact that, you know, he's, he did it just eats at him every day and he feels like he's just living this terrible lie and he wants to confess to it like during his sermons but he's too much of a little chicken shit to do it so instead at night he beats himself but even that is n no not that kind of beating like he whips his back he like self-flagellates and stuff um but that is not enough to cease the guilt that lives in him and my god he and Hester fucking deserve each other because they are just both 
fucking extra ass drama queens. In fact, he's such a fucking drama baby that he goes onto that shaming stage in the town square one night and is like, man, if only someone would come and shame me. Just, just out here in the open, waiting for some shame. But it's nighttime and no one's there because he's too much of a fucking coward to do it for real in the daytime. His kinks are his own. Don't kink shame. He doesn't want to invite anybody else, and that's okay. But he does, though. He super wants people to come see him. He just wants them to, like, do it without him having to do any work for it. So because this is a subtle book, who should be wandering around at night but... Batman. Yes. It's bat. Yeah, it's 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 Batman. He shows up and he's just like, Dimsdale, you should tell everybody you fucked Hester. That's that's what happens. I have a secret too. I watch the parents die. <laughs> We're a lot alike. Me and you. I fight crime. You, you fight sin. But not very well. Let's fuck. This is turning into a very good fan fiction, but unfortunately <laughs> I have to stop it here. Because it's not Batman who shows up. It's Hester and Pearl. Hester and Pearl get up on the stage with Dimsdale, and they each hold uh, one of Pearl's hands. And Pearl's like, "This is nice. Like, can you know? It's it's good to have like a mom and a dad. Can we do this tomorrow? Like in front of people in the daylight hours?" And Dimsdale's like, "No." And Pearl basically calls him out for being like a spineless wiener, which is pretty impressive for a tiny child. Just like, "Daddy, you're full of shit." And Dimsdale's just kind of like, yeah. So, uh, for the first time, we get a concrete uh, sense of time that it's been seven years now. So Pearl is seven years old. Gosh darn it. Even though her vocabulary and size still kind of fluctuates as the story goes on. And yeah, Jesus Christ, Roger Chillingworth is really bad at revenge. Seven Revenge. years! <laughs> Seven years and he hasn't put it together yet. He's been living with Dimsdale for no small part of those seven years. Good job, Raj. At this point, it's been such a long time, kind of, and Hester's been, like, such a good person that people are actually forgetting why she has to wear a Scarlet A all the time. And they're like, maybe it stands for Abel or Angel. Nah, She's an Avenger. Yeah. Team Tony. Anyway, uh, Hester runs into Roger in the woods, and apparently his desire for vengeance has physically warped him into some kind of, like, weird little goblin man. He's just like, meh. And Hester is like, this is also my fault because I sinned. My precious. And at this point, even Chillingworth is like, like, for fuck's sake, calm down. Like, even the tight-ass townspeople are voting for you to not even have to wear the stupid letter anymore. So maybe relax a little. And for whatever reason, she decides that now's the time to be like, BTW, I fucked Dimsdale. And he's like, BTW, I figured it out. Eventually. And I'm torturing him by being his creepy roommate. And Hester's like, that's weird. And then he leaves. Ciao. It's been real. <laughs> Ciao. So, uh, since this is just convenient forest meeting day, Dimsdale also appears. And Hester's like, hey, 
So here's the thing. Chillingworth, the guy you've been living with for years now, uh, he's my husband, and he knows that we did the no-pants dance, and he hates you. And I was like, well, shit. But whatever. I deserve it. Because sin. And then they go back and forth like this for like 30 fucking pages about who is the worst sinner and who who is just like the one that ruined the other and oh god it's like the worst game of one-upmanship ever no i sinned harder no i sinned harder no god hates me more and just on and on and on ciao <laughs> no he doesn't say uh ciao because they keep talking once they finally get that out of their system hester's like hey like, let's run away together to a place that maybe sucks less and we can live as, like, husband and wife with our kid. And Dimsdale's like, yeah, that does sound better than going home and whipping my own asshole every night. Whoa, whoa, wait, so, whoa, whoa, <laughs> whoa, 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 What's he whipping? He's, he's flagellating. His own asshole? Why not? <laughs> wow, that's really hardcore. Dimsdale's a dude with a guy, he's got a lot of feelings. So, again... Seven years, seven long, long years, and this is only just now occurring to them. Like, hey, maybe let's leave town. What are they doing with their time? Praying. Eh, that's a fair answer. Recovering from their self-flagellation on their asshole. That is an equally fair answer. Well, either way, they're going to run away now, and they're going to be happy. And I'm super sure everything is just going to work out great. And there's going to be no problems at all. In fact, there's even a ship that's going to leave for England in four days that they can take. So every, everything's, everything's all set up and ready to go. Except. Except. Except that Dimsdale starts feeling things. Strange things. Is asshole throbbing? No, maybe. He wants to argue with priests about the existence of God and teach kids dirty words and, I don't know, vandalize a park bench or something. And he begins to worry that these urges are because the whole plan is tainted with sin. Do you ever notice there's a sin button on most calculators? What do you think the deal is with that? You just need a little sin in your life? Hit the button. All you mathematicians out there, that joke was for you. Anyway... The, uh, the day before they leave, there's a new governor taking office, and it's a big deal, and everyone's out in the town square, even the, the village shun woman, Hester. And Dimsdale has a super special sermon to give, and everybody's in about as festive a mood as Puritans ever get. Also, the ship captain shows up and talks to Hester and is saying, you know, oh, we're ready for all four of you guys, and Hester's like, four? And he's like, yeah, Dimsdale's doctor and super best buddy, Chillingworth. He bought a ticket, too. So, you know, you're all going to go together. Cha-ching. Not the sound effect I was expecting. You want to you give that another shot? Dun-dun-dun. Uh, Dimsdale, meanwhile, gives his sermon, but then does that thing in, like, every movie with a pivotal speech where he just tosses out the note cards where he's looking at them and he's like, I was going to read you this thing, but... I'm not going to do that anymore. So instead, beckons Hester and Pearl up onto the stage with him. And then he kind of points to them and he's like, I did it. 
we fucked. But because that's not nearly a dramatic enough reveal for our good Reverend Extra, he tears open his shirt and reveals a scarlet letter that has appeared on his skin through the sheer power of Puritan angst guilt. He's an Avenger also. But, like, it, it's it's on his, his flesh. Team he's, Cap. He's a flesh Avenger. And you know what happens next? No. He dies. Who? Dimsdale. Which one is he? <sighs> yes, that's right. Dimsdale. <laughs> he throws open his shirt, lets everybody in town see the weird, gross skin rash that he has manifested on himself, and then he fucking dies. It was just too much. It was. Just, oh, God, the drama. And everyone in town is just like, what the fuck just happened? And then they sort of all agree as a group to ignore it forever. The ultimate release. Yeah, kind of, actually. Gross, but yeah, kind of. But uh, now that he has no one to torture, Chillingworth dies from just being a stupid goddamn idiot. And he leaves all his money, and it turns out there was quite a lot of it, to Pearl. Because why does Roger do anything? Um, and so he makes, he's, he's so wealthy that Pearl, the seven-year-old, is now the richest person in the new world. So it was a small loan from her father? <laughs> yeah, just like a, a small uh, not, you know, loan from her, from her, well, no, because he's, <laughs> he's not, he's not her father. That's kind of the crux of it, but. <laughs> hey. 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 So Hester and Pearl take the money and get the fuck out of town. Except Hester comes back some years later because I guess she belongs where the sin happened. But she comes back alone, without Pearl, who is presumably having a way more fun life. But she sends her mom lots of money and gifts, and the people in town love her because nobody remembers that weird shit from years ago. And she still wears the A because of course she does. But at this point, the A has lost all meaning, and it's just a weird thing the nice old lady who lives alone likes to wear. And when she dies, they put it on her gravestone, as a mark of respect. Because irony. The end. So that's the Scarlet Letter. Uh, so, Scarlet Letter, as I mentioned earlier before we dove into the summary, big hit at the time. Basically sold out as soon as it hit shelves. People loved it, and they couldn't print them fast enough. It was actually one of the first novels to be mass-produced in America. Wow, that's a pleasant turn from uh, what the people we talk about usually get. If you happen to have one of the first editions just laying around your house probably sell it from what i learned you could get eighteen thousand dollars for a first edition wow good for him good for him <laughs> good for hawthorne do want to talk really quickly just because this is this is great so um there are plenty of film adaptations of the scarlet letter loop de doo who cares there's one adaptation that's worth talking about is from 1995 and it stars Gary Oldman as the Reverend Dimsdale. Anti-Semite. Y- yes. Gary Oldman, anti-Semite, kind of a bastard, as the Reverend Dimsdale. Demi Moore as Hester Prynne. Cougar. Rawr. And Robert Duvall as Chillingworth. Dude's like 100. Sure, but this was 1995. It was nominated for seven Golden Raspberry Awards. It is 
so bad. Wait, you gotta so look up the plot? Bad. The plot's not the book? No, the plot's not the book! Well, that's a problem. <laughs> that's why it's so good. Okay, so Hester waits for her husband, and she falls in love with Dimsdale, and that, that part is, is kind of the same. And so Hester is imprisoned, and in this one, Dimsdale's, like, ready to declare his sin and be executed, and Hester tells him not to. And I like this. Not only does she have to wear the A, but also a drummer boy has to follow her around whenever she comes to town. And then uh, Robert Duvall shows up and he murders a random townsperson and then uh, scalps him to make it look like it's a Native American. And so then all of the townspeople get mad at, at this atrocity and they declare war on the Native Americans, and then Chillingworth is so upset by what's happened because of what he's done, kills himself. And uh, then Hester's almost hanged for no real reason, and then Dimsdale saves her by confessing that he's the father of her child. I don't know why that saves her from hanging, but uh, he takes her place on the, the gallows, and then the Native Americans attack, and then everybody fights and dies, and then the Puritans become more concerned with concealing the fight from England than bothering Hester, and so she just leaves. With Dimsdale, so it's a happy ending. They just, like, fundamentally changed the whole end and just chunks of the plot, and it's also just a shitty movie. It's very entertaining. Megan, Scarlet Letter. Ready to talk over me. Well, you know, Megan. We, we, have a, we have a way of doing things, and you're just supplanting them. Megan. RJ. Scarlet Letter. Good or bad? I gotta admit, I've, I've come around to the Scarlet Letter. Uh, when I first read it, I was in 10th grade. I had hated it. I'd hated every second of it because it's um, people moaning a lot about sin uh but rereading it like i forgot just how bonkers this book is and just how like overly dramatic and ridiculous everyone was and honestly like i enjoyed it way more this uh second time around so you know what i'm gonna say good rj yeah it's got a letter good or bad as a whodunit this book is severely lacking as a preacher fucking a parishioner it's pretty good as a revenge tale, it's kind of lacking. Do you never get the real payoff? You know, everyone just starts dying. You just never get the blow off in the end. Nathaniel, what were you thinking? Probably, gosh, I really wish I wasn't living on this commune, shoveling at the poop hill. And that'll about do it here at Ono oh Lit Class. I'm Batman. No, we're not at that part yet. <laughs> Thank you, Batman, but not yet. Not yet. <laughs> I'm not waiting. Yet. Not yet. In the night. If you enjoy this podcast. No, I can't do that the whole time. That hurts. If you enjoy this podcast, and you might, I don't know. It's a crazy world out there. God willing, someone enjoys this podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes. Like us on Facebook. Add us on Twitter. Just, you know, do stuff. Say hi. Be friendly and sociable. The next episode should be on April 27th. This has been Ono Lickless. Don't whip your asshole. <laughs> don't whip your asshole, Billy. <laughs> no, don't eat the shit, Billy. Don't eat the shit or whip your asshole, Billy. I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Bye. Bye.